0: Hi there, welcome back to Destination USA from Index Ventures. We've supported over 40 companies with their U.S. expansion and have written a guidebook. Now we're bringing you this series of first-hand accounts of how Europe's leading entrepreneurs and tech operators expanded their businesses to the U.S.
1: We had to push harder in the U.S. because indeed we were a lesser-known entity.
0: This week, Index partner Jan Hammers speaks with Adyen founder Peter van der Doos. Adyen is a payments company that allows merchants to accept e-commerce, mobile and point-of-sale payments. They've achieved spectacular global success while anchored in Amsterdam. Adyen was founded in 2006 and listed on Euronext in 2018. 13% of their 2000 employees are in the US.
1: Yes, we hired great people. But when we hired them, we had something to give to them so that they also could be successful, that they had some tools to work with and that they didn't start just with a desk, an empty office and a product which then turns out to be uh, to have teething problems because it's a new market.
0: Jan and Peter talk about how being a second-time founder nuanced Peter's approach. Audience journey from Boston to San Francisco to New York and how a global p impacts culture.
2: Let's just begin with introducing yourself. Just share briefly where you grew up, what you studied, and how you got into business.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in suburbia of Amsterdam. And I think the most uh, remarkable thing about my uh, youth is that I very early started a trade in mopeds. I was always going through the local paper with mopeds for sale. And then I would buy mopeds, I would refix them, and I would sell them. And at an age of 10, I sometimes make hundreds of euros a week selling mopeds. And I used to have like 15 mopeds on stock. And I took the garage of my parents and I had all sort of spare parts. It led my parents to believe that my course of life wouldn't be as standard as was normal in our family. I studied in many different countries, so for a while in Paris, for a while in the U.S., but I finished a degree in economics from the University of Amsterdam. At the time, it was really really the highest you could do, is see if you could get into an, uh, into an executive training program at one of the international firms. So I started doing that for a bank, for ING Bank. Didn't really like it, so I quitted the role myself. And then I did it for an international publisher, Elsevier. Uh, because that brought me for a while to New York, it brought me for a while to, to uh, the UK. So that's what I like, because I thought, like, let's, let's develop in a very uh, international setting. And only there I found out, like, ah, I actually want to be an entrepreneur. That's way cooler. So then I already had a few years of executive training under the belt.
2: Before ADN, you founded Bibit. And it sounds like you had all the ingredients. You knew how to trade in mopeds, economics degree, international experience so how was it being a first-time founder
1: so the company that i joined at the time was just starting and uh, they had done uh, more consultancy type of business so the name was already around and when i started there we uh, we did change that it was we we made it a billing company and we were a little bit too early because billing at the time didn't take off yet it was really the the startup, the way you think it is, just a, few, uh, just a few commercial people and a few engineers and in the same location, direct with servers and uh, uh, opening the window when it was really warm because we were afraid the servers would overheat. That is, that is how we started it. And as we found out that the true problem was more in payments, uh, the, the company pivoted and we made it into a uh, payments company. And because the Netherlands is small, we, we start doing that, building an international company basically from day one. We don't have a home market in the Netherlands. So if you, if you are ambitious, you know that you're never going to build a big company uh, based on Dutch just national merchants. What I do think is an advantage, having a small home market, so we know we need to run an international company.
2: You always mentioned that about the start of AGN, uh, that the home market was small but you had the know-how, you knew where to go and how to win international clients from the get-go. So how was that second time experience different?
1: There are a few things we did wrong the first time. At least we felt we did wrong. And that is in dealing with investors, we gave away way too many rights. We had shareholders on the non-executive board whereas we felt that we probably would have benefited from an independent uh, non-executive board and only one shareholder brought us an independent and we felt that that was the most uh, valuable non-executive board member. So that was a mistake. In our first company, we were way too dependent on partners. And we felt in our second company, if we can control quality and if we can build things ourselves end-to-end, So the focus on quality in itself was our USP. So it's not so much that we had a unique product, it was just way better.
2: Peter, this brings back the wonderful memory of us sitting on the canal in spring 2011, I believe it was. And uh, you talking actually about this experience and you were saying the way you're building the company, it's common shares, no frills, no nonsense. And you were pretty clear that the business didn't need any money. Yet, you sat there with me and you were entertaining this conversation. I remember this moment vividly. And at some point, you dropped this hint about always be closing. And I just wanted to uh, pick on this point and, um, and uh, understand how you thought about capitalizing the company and raising money at the time that you didn't need any.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, there are probably different versions of this story because it became such a uh, such an iconic moment. But at the time, at the end, our second company was doing really well, and we were doing well because we were having engineers building great products, commercial people selling it, and we were very strong about our philosophies in always be closing. So. If there is a merchant, there is always something around payments that we think could improve. And if you find that, let's build them the product. Let's give them something to fix that. And there is always a deal to be done. That was our philosophy. Then speaking to investors, we had very specific requirements, and that is that we felt it should be common stock, no board seat. Uh, we are running uh, a at the time small but promising company. I think we ran. We were like. Fifty-seven people, uh, on average over that year, and probably the year ended around ten million uh, net revenues. So there was there was investor interest, but always when when we said this is how we look at it, nobody was interested in closing a deal, and that was so so different than our views on if we're talking to investors and apparently we're interested. Why why are investors so? reluctant to close a deal and always giving them their terms because it was not our philosophy for end that wasn't good enough that wouldn't make make such an investor an end salesperson because there's always a deal to be done and you should ask for the deal then you can always say I don't and this doesn't come together but investors never got to the point even that they tried to get a deal with us so when I said to you yeah we say always be closing then why were we interested in raising money? Because the best time to raise money is without stress, when you don't need it. And if you really believe that your company is so, uh, has so much runway, then what do you care about that small dilute that raising money would give you versus de-risking and having the peace of mind to execute and having a very stable company so that merchants who are dealing with you know that you will be around also on a rainy day, also if you have a, hit a rough patch. So it was not money needed for execution. It was comfort.
2: Well, that's great. And I'm forever thankful that you gave us the opportunity, that you spoke to us with such clarity as to what it took and and ultimately for being so pragmatic and uh, getting to a handshake. So thank you for what was the beginning of a wonderful partnership.
1: Well, yeah, I'm very happy that you took the challenge because others walked away from it. And with hindsight, it, it of course is easy, but at the time, it was a proposition that nobody wanted to entertain.
2: So let's shift ahead. The company grew. You had this vision that you just outlined to not depend on partners. So tell us a little bit about the early days, kind of the building first and then going to get customers after
1: yeah, on the one hand side, we are extremely pragmatic in listening to our merchants and building to what they need. With one twist, we only build what's generic. So if one merchant says our next market is going to be, say, Australia, then probably Australia is also on the list for other merchants. So we check that so that we don't open up the whole region and then later find out that the reasons were not good enough. So that's the part of things that we built really on, on merchant demand, but it has to be generic. It has to be reusable. On the other hand, we also built our product in a different way, where we said we want to control quality. So we go very deep into the systems, we, uh, into the system. And indeed, we took a very different approach, where often at the time it would the uh, Everybody believed that there was no value from digging that deep into it and that you should connect to bank systems. We said those acquiring platforms, those systems, we should build them ourselves because it will lead to a difference in quality. So that was a very opposite way of looking at it. And that, and that benefited because we, uh, because we built it, we controlled it, and we could show that we outperformed what was at the time the common way of, uh, of, of building a payments company.
2: How important was the United States sort of from the get-go and what weight did you assign to conquering America?
1: What we did is we did three things. We did full stack, we did international, and then we also added all channels so that you can with uh, one company do both stores or physical transactions and online. That makes the coverage of what the company does huge, enormous. If you look at the U.S., what was attractive for U.S. companies in stage one? If I have a contract with this European company, it'll service my European entities. So that's how we started. And then we became more global. And then, it's, then we moved to the stage, if I deal with this company, it will cover my non-U.S. volume. That's great. I can do Latin America with them. I can do Australia with them. I can do uh, various Asian countries. This is fantastic. Then we came to the next stage, say the third stage. So first Europe, then uh, so non-US Europe, non-US many countries in the world. Then we came to the third stage, which is, hey, actually this company is really good. I can also give them domestic volume. So then we start winning from those companies that we first had their non-US entities, also volume of their US entities. So that was stage three. And only... After that, we got to stage four, and that's where we are now. We are winning U.S. business from U.S. companies that do not have international volume with with us. So that's a new stage where we are, as a company started in Europe, winning from U.S. companies for pure U.S. volume, and there's no other reason to work with us than quality of the product, quality of the service.
2: And you first went to Boston, is that right? It was sort of an East Coast start and then followed by a west coast expansion how did that journey
1: look the east coast was attractive for two reasons one we had network there so we had people that we worked with in the past and secondly from time zones at least you have a few hours overlap in a day so it was a, a way to get started we did it extremely early already in 2008 whereas in the summer of 2007 we had the first live transaction In 2008, we were already in the U.S. market with U.S. people on the ground visiting large merchants. As the company progressed, we felt we needed to be closer to where our large merchants were, and we were really winning large deals where the top legal entity, so it was in the beginning often with their European entities, but where the decision makers were based more in San Francisco. So then it felt logical to to also open up an entity in San Francisco. And... As things progressed, that became our entity in the U.S. And actually, Boston, a few people left and we didn't hire. So then we we just had San Francisco. What then happened after that is because there's so much retail on the East Coast, we came back. So we started a new office in New York, which is now a fantastic office, uh, which is very retail focused. So uh, that has been our journey from Boston to San Francisco to two locations, uh, San Francisco and New York.
2: And... In those days, you signed Uber, you signed Facebook, and later on, you added Netflix, Dropbox, Microsoft. And ultimately, in the the pre-IPO year, uh, it was eBay on the mega merchants list. Uh, I'm guessing you you worked on closing some of these accounts for years. Would you have uh, pursued this strategy again if you were starting again?
1: You have to pick a strategy, and our strategy was a Better product, and you sell that to the companies who notice. And in payments, a better product means that if you measure in, uh, in success rate of your transactions, you get to a higher success rate. Now, the only way to, uh, to really measure that is to companies who have payment managers who are measuring that and who are doing multiple transactions per second so they can see the delta. So it was for a logical group to sell to because they would value the quality of the product. So uh, yes, I would do it again. That was our entry point. The most demanding merchants could appreciate the highest quality product. Uh, so that's where we could uh, where we could where we had a foot in the door.
2: It would be great if you could share here a little bit about your approach to marketing, and especially in light of the fact that once you entered the U.S. market. AGN was positioned as an, as an underdog.
1: We had to push harder in the US because indeed we were uh, le- a lesser known entity. We got there first in a very tiny group, in a group of really industry insiders, but then on the back of all the names that we signed, then we became known at a wider audience.
2: It'd be great to share a little bit about your hiring strategy and how you have grown your talent pool in both Europe as well as the US.
1: Yeah, we are building a company where very talented people feel at home. And that always sounds very attractive to hire talented people, but you also have to realize that talented people have different needs. They can, they're highly employable, so they can work anywhere. So they will work where they like it. And like often means where they feel they have traction. So you need to find a setup where an engineer can throw out products which are really being used, which have a short go-to-life date. And... That means that in, in the way how we have built Adyen, uh, the, uh, for example, who do you promote? Talented people don't want to report it to project manager. They, they want to report it to somebody who has a decent understanding of what they do. So it means that you have a subset of managers that you can promote because the typical manager who, who is a non-engineer and manages an engineering department, that is not going to work in, in, in our company. Um, so it's also a, uh, you could say it's a hindrance, because you cannot babysit very talented people. Uh, you need to give them runway. A few things that we do, which are very different than other companies, I would say, you cannot be hired by Altian without having spoken to one of the six board members. So no matter in which location you're being hired or uh, for which role, we want to control if we are still hiring those uh, those very talented people who will thrive in our culture. So therefore, a board interview. It takes time, but we think it's a very efficient. Um, something else that we do is we have only one p and a global p and So we want to avoid the silly, uh, I'm not going to work on that deal because it's not in, uh, in my country's P&L. And now I've, I'm working very hard for something that you're going to get credit for. We only, credit on a, uh, we only look at results on a company uh, level. But it has an impact also on promotions because that's not a culture in which it's easy to promote somebody from outside. So we are heavily biased towards internal promotions.
2: These are fascinating insights. I would love to go a little bit further, Peter. You and your team have codified some of these learnings into what is known as the IGN formula. Could you share a little bit about the core tenets of the formula?
1: One thing which stood out is which we tell people is don't hide behind email, pick up the phone. And the reason why is if you work through time zones and cultures, different cultures, things are misinterpreted and people get slightly annoyed with each other for no good reason. Things that would never have happened if they would have picked up the phone. And I found the most hilarious example that at a certain point, somebody in the US uh, sent an email to support, how many transactions can we do per second? And then the answer was, why do you want to know? And then they got annoyed with each other. And I was at the time in the U.S. And the person in Europe, of course, thought, like, why do you want to know? Is this re- real or is this just a question? Is this peak volume or is, is this, will this be sustained? Or is this just for uh, for a few minutes? What is the geographical print? This is this just U.S. volume or is this volume maybe in a market where our connections are do not have the bandwidth? So... The person in Europe was asking for details so he could make a better judgment. Person in the US thought that he was not being helped very much and that support should just just provide answers rather than ask questions. If they would have picked up the phone, this would never have happened. So therefore we say, don't hide behind email, pick up the phone. We say winning is more important uh, than ego. It just doesn't go down very well uh, in a company where we are so reliant upon each other and we're working together as the secret sauce. Say a salesperson starts really taking the stage for a deal which they have done, where in reality it's a superior product. Many engineers worked on this. During the sales process, we often have the account management and engineers involved. So there is never a single winner. So let's, uh, let's also not try to call that out. And that's how we build a formula with eight points. An important one is, what do you do with the Dutch culture? Dutch are being known to be very rude or very direct. So what we say to, what we instruct everyone is or ask is talk straight without being rude. And that means something else in San Francisco than what it means in New York than what it means in Sao Paulo. But within your culture, try to be on the very straight side. Give the data, be transparent. We we run a company with high transparency. So we also ask of the employees, let's be transparent with each other, with our merchants, with our partners. And uh, that has worked very well, the Altian formula. And it evolves over time. And it's not as prescriptive as sometimes people from outside the company think. It's it's, it's more a description of, hey, these are the behaviors that work well for us. Why don't you try it? And don't use it as a hammer to hit other people with, like, what you did there is illegal. It's not according. It's not the holy book. It's a set of instructions that evolve over time and that work well for us.
2: Switching gears a little bit. How... Do you think the world will look in the in the new post-covid world and what aspects of the company culture and way of doing things will remain and w- which parts do you think might evolve?
1: Yeah, what what we did at the beginning of this year each board member said what they liked about working under the covid uh, restraints because it also brought us good things and one of the things that stood out is that it's the great equalizer it's suddenly it's so easy that if you and i have a discussion and we think like hey what would uh, what would uh, warren in singapore think about this we can just say let's zoom him in let's uh, let's with and with one click he's in our session we would never do that if we sit together in the coach uh in the bar of at the end having a coffee then you're not suddenly getting your computer and zooming in somebody else in a different location. So um, it has given so many people the opportunity to show their brilliance that that is something we need to keep. So I'm thinking, uh we're we spending brain cycles on how do we keep the benefits of, in this global company, that suddenly it doesn't matter if somebody is two kilometers away or, or an 11-hour flight. So, so parts of it we will need to keep. I think, for example, the All Hands works. We used to do it in Amsterdam and then we would broadcast it over the world. I wonder if it does make sense at all to, to have a location where you have it uh, or if that's just going to be an online event from now on. Uh, so uh, the, the, the pre-COVID ADN will never return. It will, uh, and some of it we cannot even see yet, but there will be, it will be a mix but there is a but, but ADEAN people like to come to the office, so I I still think we need we'll we'll have offices and we'll need officers.
2: More and more younger companies are looking at ADIN as a role model and would like to follow in your footsteps. What advice would you have for European founders who are in the process of setting their eyes on the US market?
1: You need to have a really good product and the US market is a very demanding market. And we always always felt that you need to go through, uh, we actually have a sort of a list of of things that you need to have before you can be successful in a new market. So during the course of Adyen, we have rolled out in many markets and we always said, first, we we are selling in that market from abroad so that there are reference merchants. You cannot just hire somebody and tell, tell that person, build a team and start selling because the first window is so likely to be debugging and that is then so harsh on that new team because they're just starting and they're starting with a product that that's only so-so so we always if we open a new market start selling from abroad building a customer base being having referenceable customers and that's the point where we start looking at a country manager so that you have somebody with and that you give that person a package that that you can actually build out. And sometimes people try to skip those steps. And I always wonder if that's possible because we have opened so many markets. I've opened them for our first company, for Bibbit, now for our second company, for Adyen. And at a certain point, we felt we know the steps of opening up a country. And um, I always admire, I wish it was true because sometimes you hear entrepreneurs say, "Uh, Brazil, how we opened it? We just found the best person we could get and that person built a team, and that's how we opened it. That's not the way it worked for us. Uh, yes, we hired great people, but when we hired them, we had something to give to them so that they also could be successful, that they had some tools to work with, and that they didn't start just with a desk, an empty office, and a product which then turns out to be uh, to have teething problems because it's a new market.
2: What have been the mistakes, if any, that you wish you could have avoided along the journey
1: we have always made mistakes and we make and uh, the question for me always has been how much of an impact uh, that makes because you can afford some small mistakes and you have to learn from them and for an example which you could mention is we started in point of sale with a bluetooth terminal which had had many issues
2: oh i remember the small device correct yeah the Mura. that's it
1: yeah Um, If you look at our merchant base, we had a merchant base uh, of enterprise merchants which needed a different terminal. So for us, it was a new market with a new product. Uh, That's always tricky because usually you do a new product in an existing market or an existing product in a new market. But here it was both. But I wouldn't really say it was a mistake. We learned a lot from it. Uh, We didn't hang on too long. Uh, It it gave us the knowledge to move on to uh, the terminal fleet that we currently run. It's the launch fast and iterate. If you accept that you will make mistakes, launch fast, but also say goodbye to stuff that doesn't work or make the iterations to, uh, to move away from it. And it's also something that I want to keep in the company currently that also with this size, if we started a project and it's not so, uh, and it isn't what we expected, that we can still drop it and that you don't get very good people on it who just keep on striving for having success with it. Uh, because if you cannot generate ideas and accept that some of them were just not as good as they seemed, and that actually with hindsight they were maybe horrible ideas, uh, you need to have the, the iterations and to say, okay, let's iterate on this product or maybe even let's rob this. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't as brilliant as it seemed on day one. Yeah, it sounds soft, but I found it uh, intriguing when we went IPO. That's when you intensively work with people from outside the company. They were shocked to see how how we deal with each other because there's a there's a lack of hierarchy, and there's a constant sharpening our minds uh, challenging each other, so it's on the one hand side it looks really relaxed, but it 's also extremely extremely competitive because you will be challenged on what you say and what 's the best iteration so uh, you really saw that the bankers who came in the beginning and those are very smart people uh, in the beginning really had to to well you saw a certain amount of shock where uh, it's, it's the bright idea that wins and not the person who says it.
2: How do you decompress from running this huge global business? Do you still practice extreme sports? I vividly remember those ski bruises.
1: <laughs> yeah, they were more than bruises, yeah. Uh, I hugged a tree. <laughs> so uh, I run, I bike, I windsurf. We do take week-long holidays, weeks of holidays. And that there's also something to do that we have built this company to keep. So that also means that we manage it in a way that we can do for a long time. This is not, a, this is not I'm, I'm CEO for four years, so I'm going to max out in four years and after that I'm wasted. We are building this. There's so much runway still for the company that we want to do this in a, in a way, and that's for, for everybody that works with Inadian, that we can do this at, for a sustained period of time. So that also means that we need to balance that off um, so I, I go for winter holidays, both in summer and spring. I ski. I like to ski also uh, backcountry, so with a guide. I changed climbing to hiking because it's so much nicer to do that with the family. Um, but I still uh, our hiking tours are a little bit more extreme than uh, uh, than what most families do. So uh, my my children have seen many parts of the world and uh, in less comfort than most uh, than most children.
2: Well, Peter, thank you for this um, wonderful opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your insights uh, specifically about your uh, journey to the U.S. But more broadly, thank you very much for including me and the Index family as part of your journey. And um, all the best for the future years.
1: Well, thanks for having me on this show. And Index has always been a fantastic partner for us. I'm uh, I'm happy that we still uh, regularly speak to each other.
0: episode, we'll be talking about hiring in the U.S. with Elizabeth Bramlage, Chief Marketing Officer of Comply Advantage, and Nicholas Desain, Co-founder and former CEO of Algolia. You're almost best prepared if you aren't too wedded to getting it perfect. See you then.